0: Welcome back to Elderside, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha, And I'm Glenn McDorman. Today, we are talking
1: about The Red Hand, a short story by Arthur Mackin published in 1895. Uh, this is a little bit bittersweet here, Brandon. I really love this story, but It also marks the final installment in our series on Occult Detectives that we were doing this year because, uh, well, we're coming to the end of the year, which means we are coming to the end of our our series. And uh, I'm going to be sad to say goodbye to these.
0: I am too. I feel like we've barely even touched on occult detective s- stories for this series, you know, of what's out there, of the, the breadth of storytelling. And uh, it makes me really sad too. I love occult detective ser- stories. I've been thinking about occult detectives a lot this year in general, also for my own writing. And this has been a real, real pleasure. One of the all timers, I think, for, um, for our show, Elder Sign.
1: Yeah. And even though this is the last story, we're not done talking about them because the whole idea of having two themes that we're doing this year interspersed with other voted on episodes, random stories that uh, our listeners have selected for us is for us to have a conversation about each of these themes in our wrap up episode, our our year in review episode, I should say. And that is coming up, of course. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty psyched for that conversation.
0: Yeah, it's going to be a great conversation. I also want to point out here at the top that a few weeks ago for Remembrance Day, we, we covered Aliens on Patreon. If you like the movie Aliens and you want to hear us chat about that, uh, join us on Patreon and you'll get access to a ton of other content as well. Yeah, Aliens was super exciting to do. And uh, I hope everyone will
1: want to check that out if you're not already with us on Patreon. But uh, this story too is awesome. The Red Hand is a story that I really love from Arthur Mackin, And you, Brandon, have been pretty high on Arthur Mackin in the past. And uh, I'm excited to hear what you have to say about this. And uh, in fact, it's your your job this week to do the recap. So get us into
0: it. Well, we we've covered one other Mackin story that features this character who's created called uh, Dyson and 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 that was The Inmost Light and which I loved and that's kind of where I've been high on Mackin Mackin I didn't love uh his meme stories as I call them, you know, the uh Angels of the Lamonts, or, or whatever they're called, the bowmen—you know—all these things that showed up in the newspaper. But this kind of writing, I really love. And, and so, as I've said, this is the second Dyson story that we've read. Um, and I have to say at the outset here that uh, I, I really wish Mackin had just turned Dyson into a serious serial character, and that Dyson had would have had as big an impact on our culture as Sherlock. Holmes has had. I I would really be glad for that. I think there's uh, really interesting comparisons to make or contradictions between these two characters. Uh, One more thing I want to say at the outset before we get going here is that this story is broken up into chapters essentially. So we'll be moving through this a chapter at a time, I guess. The first chapter is called The Problem of Fish Hooks. And that's where we meet Dyson at the outset of The Red Hand. And Dyson is engaging in a waning conversation with his good friend, Mr. Phillips, about the genuineness or authenticity of some prehistoric fish hooks that Phillips is examining. Dyson thinks that these pieces may be forgeries, but Mr. Phillips is certain that they are not. And part of the reason why Dyson thinks these pieces could be inauthentic, or maybe the right way to characterize how Dyson thinks about these fish hooks is that they're not very old. Um, but that's part of the reason why Dyson thinks that these are not what Phillips thinks they are, uh, is that because those ancient races like the troglodyte might still be with us. Uh, they just might be hidden from our sight and are surviving somewhere. And they might still be making fish hooks. And this could confuse the the presence of these more recent ancient fish hooks (laughs) might be confusing to arrogant ethnologists like Mr. Phillips. Now, these words somewhat inflame Mr. Phillips, who tells Dyson that he'll believe troglodytes still exist when Dyson finds him one. And with this, Dyson tells him that he can find him a troglodyte this very night. And since it's a nice night for a walk, Phillips should come along on a walk with Dyson. That is also uh, a kind of an attempt at an urban troglodyte safari, I guess. (laughs) And and, and Phillips thinks that this is all nonsense, but he does agree to go with Dyson for a walk uh, because they want to keep hanging out and the conversation has died. So they do take this walk and the walk is wide ranging. And eventually the two men end up in some seldom traversed back alleyways behind an area where Dyson has seen evidence of a street artist having worked at this location in the daytime. And as Dyson and Phillips are walking through a dark passageway, they stumble over almost literally a dead man. Now, this man has not been dead long, and they know this because the wound on the victim's neck is still relatively fresh. It's a slashing wound. And so Dyson hails the police in the street, and he and Phillips stick around while the police perform their initial investigation of the crime scene. And also they need to answer some questions as witnesses. As Dyson and Phillips are at the crime scene, Dyson does some poking around for himself. He finds two things that are relevant to the case, and he also learns the victim's name as well. The victim was named Sir Thomas Vivian. He was a surgeon and a doctor to the, to the royal family. And because Sir Thomas has his belongings on him, including an expensive watch, uh, the police know this murder wasn't motivated by robbery but what dyson finds out is far more interesting so dyson you know as he's poking around he finds the murder weapon which is like a primitive flint knife likely from the neolithic period and that's interesting on its own but it turns out that there is also a clean and unused modern knife laying beneath the doctor's body, the victim's body. Dyson also finds a red drawing done in chalk of a hand, and the hand is making some kind of symbolic gesture where the thumb is placed between the first and middle fingers. Phillips recognizes this gesture as a as a sign um, that is preceding but related to the curses connected to the evil eye. So it's an old sign. It's an evil sign. And it looks like Dyson and Phillips have just nearly missed then uh, a troglodyte murdering a gentleman. And that's where this section ends. You might even say it's an elder sign, except that
1: It is not, right? Although Lovecraft (laughs) did also conceive of the Elder Sign initially as a gesture and specifically as a gesture that predates the evil eye gesture, this is a different gesture. It's not the same thing as the Elder Sign. But nonetheless, I am certain that this story was important in the genesis of Lovecraft's Elder Sign because as we have already seen this year, this very story also was important for Lovecraft in thinking about the horror at Red Hook now of course the link there was this idea that old religious beliefs have not completely gone extinct this idea that there are practitioners of prehistoric religions just hiding in plain sight but here Macken goes a step further in having Dyson posit that entire prehistoric civilizations have survived into high modernity and that there are somewhere people still living in caves and making flint tools. And so therefore not just letting modernity pass them by, but also letting medievality pass them by and also antiquity pass them by. Also, maybe they are serial killing people in London alleys and, um, uh, That idea brings me to the final thing I want to say about this setup, which is that this story was published in 1895. That is just a few years after the last Jack the Ripper killing. And this story is directly inspired by those killings. It simply would not exist without them. And here at the outset, right, this very first uh, section of the story, this basically gives us a Jack the Ripper murder to solve.
0: It's so funny how the opening of this story goes from, you know, two old friends uh, having an argument about the legitimacy of some artifact and they get into a fight about it. And uh, and and Dyson's like, well, troglodytes are still out there. And Phillips is like, I I don't think so. Uh, but since Dyson is our hero, and this isn't you know postmodern fiction, we know that Dyson isn't really going to be wrong about anything. <laughs> and so we're being you know, and Dyson then just goes on this this wide ranging walk and stumbles across a murder. This is like an insane way to open a story, but I really love it. There's some things I think uh, Mockin could uh, tighten up as a, as a writer in general. I think In Most Light is a little bit more more tight as a story. But um, yet to think about this as having be, been written for a popular audience who still has these horrifying murders on their mind, this kind of idea that y- even you might stumble across a dead body in a back alley is fresh in the, the popular audience's mind. And so it does make sense given that context.
1: All right. Well, that is really just the inciting
0: incident of the story. There is a
1: Lot to to do here. So, what's the next section?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, the next section is called the incident of the letter, and we're told at the outset here that about a month has passed between uh, this section of the story and the sensational murder of Sir Thomas Vivian. Uh, Dyson and Phillips are hanging out again for really for the first time since that fateful night where they came across the body. Dyson still has this case on his mind and has really come over to Phillips' place to talk about it with Phillips. But it's clear that Phillips has moved on or is trying to move on, uh, not just from the case that they had stumbled across, but from the problem of the fish hooks as well. It, it turns out that Dyson was right and that the prehistoric fish hooks could not have been authenticated as being prehistoric. And now Phillips needs a new project, or maybe he had just hoped that Dyson would come over to to bicker and smoke tobacco, which seems to be the bedrock of their friendship. But (laughs) as I said, uh, Dyson is really here to discuss some details that he learned about the case of Sir Thomas Vivian by following it closely, and then also by attending the official inquest which I have just learned from watching Inspector Morse is a fairly important part of British police procedural storytelling. Now, Phillips tells Dyson that the matter really ought to be settled. Uh, For him, it's clear that some Italian had killed Sir Thomas Vivian. Probably this is related to some misadventures that are tied to Vivian's past. It's an Italian. We know this because that hand that was drawn in the wall was the sign of the Mano in Fica used by Italians. Uh, but that also might be tied to the Illuminati as well, which is also, you know, an Italian organization. Now, Dyson agrees that this could be the case, but there are still some facts that do not add up in his mind, especially when you consider the note that was found in Sir Thomas Vivian's pocket on the night he was murdered. The strange thing about the note, not in terms of its content, which is also bizarre, but just as a physical object, is that though the handwriting used to write the note is not Sir Thomas's, it matches the handwriting found in a secret memo book kept by Sir Thomas Vivian. That was also found on his person the night he died. So basically what we've learned here is that Sir Thomas uses two types of handwriting. Now at this point, Phillips is intrigued, you know, he's intrigued by this revelation and Dyson now has Phillips read from the letter that was found on Vivian's body Here's what it says. Hand did not point in vain, the meaning of the stars is no longer obscure. Strangely enough, the black heaven vanished or was stolen yesterday, but that does not matter in the least as I have a celestial globe. Our old orbit remains unchanged. You have not forgotten the number of my sign or you or will you appoint some other house? I have been on the other side of the moon and can bring something to show you. So Phillips, when asked what he thinks this letter could mean, states that it's clearly gibberish. Uh, Whatever is going on, though, Phillips realizes that this business with Vivian is too mired in secrets for it all not to be an ugly affair. Dyson agrees with this, and he tells Phillips that he's going to investigate further on his own Uh, really for the good of, of humanity. I mean, that's kind of his motivation here. And it's at the end of this section now that we get the quote that Lovecraft pulled for his epigram for the horror at Red Hook. I'll read it here as well. There are sacraments of evil as well as good about us. And we live and move to my belief in an unknown world, a place where there are caves and shadows and dwellers in twilight, it is possible that man may sometimes return on the track of evolution. And and it is my belief that an awful lore is not yet dead. So all of this, remember, is connected with the search of a a, a modern troglodyte, which is really Dyson's aim here, and that this sort of existence of these prehistoric men uh, is bad for humanity, I don't know. In any event, Phillips says that he just can't go with Dyson on this journey, which is totally reasonable. Um, Dyson knows that Phillips won't be joining him. And he also knows that he had better learn to like 4 ale because he's going to be spending a lot of time in a pub for the next part of his investigation. Yeah, all the pubs that
1: we get uh, from here on out is, I think, perhaps my my, my favorite part of the story. Mackin <laughs> really writes some good pub scenes here, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. Really, Phillips here is uh, who grabs my attention uh, because I feel bad for him. I mean, he exists in this story only to serve as a foil for Dyson, and maybe not even a foil, really just as a a, a sounding board that uh, Phillips is really Mackin's way of having someone for his detective to explain things to without actually also then having to give Dyson a a sidekick, an annoying sidekick, um, also without having the story written in first person like the Sherlock Holmes stories are. I think this is something that we'll need to take up more in the discussion because what we really need to emphasize here is that Dyson's basic premise has been proved correct. Someone in Britain is still manufacturing prehistoric flint tools for some reason. Now, we don't know who that is. You know, we don't know that Dyson's rather outlandish claim has necessarily been proved correct, or his explanation, I guess, you know, for the artifacts has been proved correct. But someone in Britain is still making these things for some reason. Also, this weird message that you read, Brandon, this is really cool. I mean, it's a page turning device for sure. We want to know what the heck all of this gibberish means. But we do know that all of this weird handwriting that is found on Vivian is Vivian's. We know that because Dyson has spoken with Vivian's wife about these written materials, and she has verified that the journal must be his, even though it is in this strange handwriting, because the content of the journal is about mostly pretty mundane stuff that she knows that he's into, mainly the theater. But there's other things in there too, just like meetings that she knows that he's taken and so on.
0: Yeah, it's 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 an excellent device that, you know, this idea of being on the other side of the moon, this is the kind of thing like where I, you know, between the ages of eight and 11, that would send shivers down my spine. You know, what could it mean? What's going on here? Uh, absolutely delightful, like boys adventure type of stuff, which I, you know, I think our audience knows I love so much. and And Dyson is to me kind of this ideal boy 's adventure hero, you know more so even than Sherlock Holmes, because he deals with the numinous and strange in a way that um, we will have rational you know explanations for all of the mysteries in the story, but the central mystery of the story has no rational explanation, and I think that that 's what uh, i don 't know is is so exciting to me in in reading these dyson stories but let 's continue on with what Dyson is up to in. <laughs> In the the red hand here, you know Dyson has it turns out somewhat decoded the strange language found in Sir Thomas Vivian's letter. We'll learn more about that later, but for now, Dyson has determined that he thinks he can find the black heaven that had vanished. Uh, Dyson hunts through pawn shops, pothouses, and public houses until one night he's drinking at a public house just off of Gray's Inn Road. Uh, So Dyson is drinking some pretty bad ale here, and suddenly a woman barges into the bar, and because of her presentation, like the, the way she presents herself, and her general sense of wildness, the barman refuses to serve her, to give her a drink. So she grabs something from her bag, like a black tablet or something, and hurls it at the bar, and then leaves. The bartender has no idea what this thing is, but maybe it's worth something. Uh, Dyson, in any event, has a hunch about what this thing is. He asks to see the object and then he offers to buy it. Dyson pays the half dollar and now it turns out that Dyson has his hands on the black Heaven. So Dyson takes this object home. He spends some time with it, examining it and so on. Um, But he really can't make heads or tails of any of the many symbols that are etched onto this black stone tablet. So he gets together with Phillips once more, who's good at ancient languages and stuff, and asks Phillips to deliver the stone. Phillips agrees to help, which is a relief to Dyson, because the stone tablet has been kind of skeeving him out, just like spending a lot of time with it. And after a week, Phillips returns to Dyson and says that there's no way to decipher the stone. He says that, quote, it must be some sort of wreckage of a vanished race, almost, I think, a fragment of another world than ours. I'm not a superstitious man, Dyson, and do know that I have no truck with even the noble delusions. But I confess I yearn to be rid of this small square of blackish stone. Frankly, it has given me an ill week. It seems to me troglodytic and abhorred. <laughs> So, you know, this, this, this stone is bad news. Uh, Phillips then points out that there's just a little label or a piece of paper or something on the back of the tablet, just in case Dyson had missed it in his own examinations. Now, Dyson had noticed this label on the back of the tablet, but hadn't had thought too much about it. It's torn for one thing, and for another, it doesn't make any sense. All that he can make out are the words inroad and stony hearted step. And even though these phrases don't make too much sense now, Dyson does have a kind of private epiphany. He's going to sit in his apartment, we learn, watch out and watch out the window. His plan also involves a street artist for some reason. And that's where this section ends. Right. This
1: business with the label on the stone is interesting. Phillips even surmises that it may have been the type of label that a museum curator would put on an object. I should add here, I guess that Phillips is some kind of scholar. Macken does not make it at all clear what Phillips's position is, but he's a professional, or at least he's a skilled amateur in a world where skilled amateurs were regarded as professionals. So yeah, totally unclear, really specifically what Phillips is
0: up to, but he he knows what he's doing here. I love this Phillips character. He's somebody who like, even though he's clearly here as the sounding board, as you pointed out, wants like a great friendship with Dyson and they're described as friends, but like Phillips is not getting much out of this relationship. Uh, and it's just, it's kind of funny the way that Makin has uh, devised their relationship and their dynamic, but Phillips is tied to the um you know like the royal fellows of whatever anthropology he 's a man of leisure and as you said, a skilled amateur who's kind of always looking for something to do, and it 's not clear why he can kind of do whatever he wants, so these are both gentlemen of leisure. They both can pursue their own passions and do whatever they want. And um, what Phillips wants is a a friendship with Dyson. And what Dyson wants is to explore the mysteries of our Earth. Right, when you say... Men of leisure, what
1: you mean is people who have money and don't need to work for a living and also seemingly are bachelors and so can do whatever they want. And so, yeah, that's what I mean when I say that Phillips is probably not someone we today would regard as a professional, meaning he does not work at a university or a museum. He doesn't work at an institution of, of scholarship. But what he does do is spend all of his time doing these activities. And at this point, you know, in the 19th century and really up until the I guess you know maybe after World War one maybe we might say skilled amateurs these men of leisure who were into these pursuits were still an important part of the community of scholars and scientists that that's not been true for about a hundred years where now we want people to have professional credentials and and so on uh, but that's not the world that we're in here so yeah Phillips is serious business here in some way and so this insight about this, label, probably coming from a museum, really got me excited. But it is going to turn out to be a red herring. But I know, you know, just my story of of how I read this story is simply that I paused right here between these chapters and really imagined that some kind of strange museum heist was going to be part of the solution to the murder mystery. And that's not going to be the case. But imagining that was super fun, right? Like, so I had just got a lot of joy out of putting a bookmark in and and sitting down and thinking about this for 10 minutes before I kept reading. Uh, before we go on, we should also pause just a little bit here and talk about the word murder, because at this point, Dyson is no longer using that word to describe the killing of Thomas Vivian. He thinks that something else may be going on here, though he doesn't say what that is yet and this struck me as a an interesting way to string the the reader along right to have the detective in the middle of the investigation think that maybe it's not even a murder that he's investigating anymore
0: macan almost throws too much at us in terms of What we're supposed to make of this story. I mean, Dyson's not really investigating. He's really just kind of relying on coincidence. And that's even set up from the opening of the story. This is just kind of a new thing that Dyson is into. And we're going to get a little bit more about his his method here in the next section. And, and, and this next section is called The Artist of the Pavement. Uh, and, and we talked a little bit about Dyson's plan, what it involves. It's not pubs anymore. He's just going to look out his window and look at a street artist. <laughs> and Dyson, Phillips just does not understand what Dyson could be hoping to accomplish with this plan at all. Uh, still, though, Phillips awaits Dyson's findings with some degree of excitement it and anticipation. After 10 days, uh, Dyson returns to Phillips uh, to tell him what he's learned. Now, Dyson actually hasn't learned anything yet, but he expects (laughs) to learn all this evening. You see, Dyson has been following this method that is rooted in what he calls the theory of improbability, which more or less states that no matter how improbable uh, or unlikely it is, for an an event to occur, if one keeps at trying to bring it about, the more probably the event occurring uh, becomes, like the more likely it will be to, to be brought about. And in the case of solving this mystery surrounding Sir Thomas Vivian, uh, Dyson had only to pay a street artist to inscribe a symbol on a wall behind him and wait for someone to eventually respond to the presence of that symbol. So Dyson watched out his window as people passed by the symbol, and eventually, someone did have an emotional and visceral reaction to seeing it. Uh, That someone had been invited to Mr. Phillips' flat, and will be arriving imminently.
1: When I started reading this story, Brandon, I... uh... Definitely did not expect that Dick Van Dyke was going to be guest starring, but (laughs) nonetheless, here he is making chalk drawings straight out of Mary Poppins. And uh, also, I guess, given that we are about to learn that the solution to the mystery relies on understanding a weird fiction version of Cockney rhyming slang, I am going to propose to you and to our our listeners that uh, Dick Van Dyke's performance as Bert in Mary Poppins was directly inspired by this story. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, we all know Dick Van Dyke was a big Arthur Machen fan, but we didn't know that he was so into Dyson in in particular.
1: Well, now I'm just yearning for the discovery that actually Dick Van Dyke played Dyson in a series of film adaptations in the <laughs> early 1970s. Uh, but just for some reason, those were never, uh, were never released, but uh, we might find them in a vault someday.
0: Yeah, in that alternate world we had, in, instead of diagnosis murder, like the Dyson Chronicles or something like that. <laughs> All right, so let's get to the revelation here uh, that we've been waiting for to learn about the mystery of the Red Hand, and, and we are in a section of the story called Story of the Treasure House. So we are at Phillips' house, uh, along with Dyson, and one Mr. Selby has arrived, To tell us of his involvement with the death of Sir Thomas Vivian. So Dyson has essentially found the solution to the case, which resides within this man's knowledge, Mr. Selby, who is now going to tell us the story behind the Red Hand. Now, Selby grew up in the west of England, where, quote, there were certain huge and rounded hills, certain depths of hanging wood, and secret valleys bastioned round on every side, That filled him with fancies beyond the bourne of rational expression. In other words, the landscape surrounding his home provided Selby's fertile imagination with the belief that there was treasure in the hills somehow. And this belief only grew with Selby as he himself came of age. In particular, Selby felt drawn to a part of the territory around him, and he began to scrabble around in the dirt. Until he found the eponymous hand as a symbol traced onto a rock in the ground. And beneath this hand, a spiral was traced on this rock as well. So he felt that he was onto something and was not just filled with the fancies of childhood. Eventually, through keeping his eyes open and by coming across convenient artifacts like the black tablet, which was actually picked up by children in a brook that Selby came across, while the children were playing in nearby cottages, you know, which is it's just full of coincidence. But Selby found what might be some kind of cave or, or well or something like that. But that was 20 years ago, and he had to move on with his life. So he's kind of kept this search in the back of his mind, but he needed to get to work. So he moved to London into a place uh, on, on that little street off of Gray's Road Inn, and he lived a life of poverty and wretchedness. But he did make one friend, a man named Thomas Vivian. Now, Thomas was in a similar situation as Selby, and because of their shared wretchedness, they fantasized about finding the treasure in the hills. They invented a a script, a way of writing, that they both wrote in, uh, hence the unfamiliar writing in Vivian's memo book matching the letter that was found also on his body. They also developed a coded language where they would swap in uh, astronomical terms for certain things they wished to remain hidden. But as Vivian realized that this was more than a fantasy for Selby, he moved on. Well, Vivian really moved on because he inherited a small fortune from a nearly forgotten relative and was able to attend medical school. This is like something they're like, you know, hanging out in each other's flat at two in the morning, talking about what they would do with riches. Only for Selby, it was very real. But Selby never forgot his friendship with Vivian and their quest. And just a few weeks ago, Selby cracked the code on the tablet and realized that this tablet was a map leading to the treasure house. So Selby followed the map and indeed discovered the cave of wonder or or treasure or or whatever. He took from the cave a flint knife as proof and wished to honor his old agreement with Vivian that they, you know, should they discover this, this treasure house, they will split the treasure. And one night while he was out, though, Selby's landlady stole the tablet in order to trade it for some whiskey. This is why Dyson came across it. Anyway, Selby met up with Thomas in that alley. Uh, This is unrelated to the, the tablet being stolen. And he brought that flint knife as proof of the discovery of the treasure house. Uh, Thomas Vivian did not look really kindly on his past. He did not have good memories of his friendship with Selby. Um, And it seems he really came to this meeting determined to deal with his old friend and their shared fantasy once and for all. So, after some walking and learning about the location of the treasure, Vivian attacked Selby, who slashed with his flint knife in self defense, killing Vivian almost instantly. Now, at this point, Dyson interrupts Selby's recollection of events and tells us, really Selby and Phillips, how he solved his side of the mystery and found Selby, most of which we've recounted. And, and what I've left out, Glenn, you know, you can recount if you really want to. But it's it's really just a kind of lot of luck and coincidence at play and a little easy code breaking. And really what's left here at the end of the story is for Dyson and Phillips to get proof of the treasure's existence themselves. So they ask Selby about the treasure, and he produces a a heavy gold object that he calls the pain of the goat. Uh, And then they ask him why he didn't go back into this cave and collect the treasure for himself, at which point Selby replies that, quote, the keepers are still there. And I guess we're meant to understand that the pain of the goat is some kind of horrifying ritual object, and that the keepers are those who would use such an object in their ritual worship of some forgotten god or something. So it turns out that troglodytes are real, as is the ancient treasure, and Selby is found innocent in Dyson's eyes of murder, and he can be let go. Dyson now ends his evening with Phillips and we end the story of the red hand in this way. Dyson says this, my dear Phillips, I do not know that after all my blunders in this queer case were so very absurd. And this ends the red hand.
1: All right. I have been uh, champing at the bit here, Brandon, because uh, your reading of this chapter is actually very different from mine. And uh, I think then that is actually where I want to start the discussion. And discussion <laughs> might just be a euphemism for bickering today. We'll see uh, how much we uh, we get into it. And uh, uh, we'll take that up in just a moment. All right, let's get into the discussion here, Brandon. I want to start with plot and world building elements. And really what we need to do is hammer out our different understandings of the last chapter of this. And really, it's it's The differences in how we have read Selby's story that we get in this last chapter. And now, some of our differences here, I think, are a matter of interpretation, but there is at least one important element that you have left out of the recap. And I think that the absence of that element has shaped your reading you have characterized this belief in some kind of cave-dwelling civilization as a fantasy that Selby has constructed because the landscape around the Mendip Hills, where he grew up—I mean, the text doesn't say Mendip Hills, but we know it's the Mendip Hills. Anyway, that's where he grew up. This landscape uh, around it fired up his imagination. But you left out the part where it's not just Selby, because what Selby believes in is the local folklore. And in fact, that is aided also by a lot of reading that he's done. And here, I'll just bring the text to bear here. Here's the, the line that we get. From a course of obsolete and occult reading, and from listening to certain wild legends in which the older people still secretly believed, I grew firmly convinced of the existence of treasure, the horde of a race extinct for ages, still hidden beneath the hills. And so where you have presented Selby as a kind of well, I guess as a kind of crazy person, really, I don't think that that's what Mackin is doing at all. In fact, I think we are the crazy ones, right? We're the people who have allowed high modernity to alienate us from the worldview of our recent ancestors and to
0: lose their folk knowledge. You're 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 a hundred percent right. My choice uh, in in leaving that out, I think, was one. Where in conceiving of how to recap this story or retell it, I wanted to emphasize uh, Selby's character, which I think to me is still characterized by his need for this to be real, to make sense of um, the way that his life has turned out, especially seeing his friend move on and so forth, Uh, that he wants this treasure to be real because it represents more then thinks he came across in texts as a young boy, the folkloric beliefs around him. But it's also this this fantasy that he's been clinging to his whole life. And we do get that. You know, Selby recognizes that it was also a childhood fantasy. He spent a lot of time imagining what he would do if he found the treasure. And he carries that with him all the way long years after he has been a child. So I think it was a, a choice of emphasis. Though I should have said, um, you're right that he, you know, found information in his father's books and people around him held this belief about the Hills and emphasized a kind of different element of Selby's character that I found to be um, compelling as, uh, as, as and presented it to us.
1: Yeah. So here's where I want to move this into talking about Thomas Vivian, because, this is where i think our our different reading of selby's conviction here really matters for the plot because you have characterized vivian's participation in selby's belief or his conviction about this long lost treasure you've characterized that as a shared Fantasy, and you've presented Vivian as really treating it that way, right? Where this was some kind of, of of game that they were playing while they were living in this, you know, impoverished state together. That this was just a bit of of, of goofing off late at night. But I do not think that that is right. At least as. Selby tells it, and, and here maybe I might make an aside uh, to go back to something else you said earlier, Brandon, which is that uh, this is not a postmodern story. So I think that we're, you know, in this type of story, we need to take Selby's story as being as literally true as we can as we can take it here. But at any rate, as Selby tells the story, Vivian was just as into this as Selby was, except that it just wasn't for the same reasons. I mean, Selby, is interested in not being poor. He's interested in the treasure for the wealth that it would bring, but he is into this at least in part because he wants to know if the old folklore is true, or or really probably the better way to put it is that he wants to know how accurate the old folklore is. But Vivian, as we, we know, is only into it for the treasure because he needs money so that he can pay for medical school i should add here that he's already been accepted into a program he just doesn't have the cash for the tuition or for the type of lodgings that he would need during his his course during medical school but selby tells us that it is vivian who cracks the code on the tablet and at that point, then it is just a matter of figuring out how to apply that knowledge to the landscape, so that the entrance to the caves beneath the Mendip Hills, and also the treasure trove that is there, uh, so that that can be found. And here again, I want to read the text, and then I will present my, well, vastly different understanding of it to both you and the the audience here, Brandon. Uh, this is what Mackin writes. Meanwhile, we exhausted ourselves in efforts to get at the heart of the mystery, and after a couple of years had gone by, I could see that Vivian began to sicken a little of the adventure. And one night, he told me with some emotion that he feared both our lives were being passed away in idle and hopeless endeavor. Um, I'm going to interrupt myself here just to say that already this is very different from how you summarized it, where you said that Vivian realized that for Selby this work was more than just a, a fantasy, but that's not what the text I think has just, has just said, right? Vivian is doing the, the work here and is into the cracking of the code. Um, but let me finish this, this paragraph and then we'll, we'll take all that up. Uh, not many months afterwards, he was so happy as to receive a considerable legacy from an aged and distant relative whose very existence had been almost forgotten by him. And with the money at the bank, he became at once a stranger to me. As we said goodbye, I reminded him of the promise I had given and solemnly renewed it. Uh, I should explain that this promise is that he will get back in touch with Vivian. In fact, the promise is they will get back in touch with each other if one of them should ever find another clue or, you know, have some kind of epiphany or, you know, figure this all out, right? Uh, The promise basically is that neither of them will go find the treasure without the other, And so now we're going to come here to the last part that I I want to read. This is the last thing Selby says here. But Vivian laughed with something between pity and contempt in his voice and expression as he thanked me. And I think your understanding of all this, Brandon, or your your inference about this, especially this last line, is that uh, Selby's a crazy person. Vivian knows it and wants to get away and so has this pity and contempt. But my understanding of this is that there is no distant relative. The deal here is that Vivian, who cracked this code to begin with, also figured out how to read the inscription as a map or, you know, some kind of set of directions. And he went off and found the treasure without Selby, that he's he's already broken this promise. And that's why he's laughing and having this pity and, and contempt at Selby as Selby's reminding him of the promise and, you know, renewing his vow to it, right? That I think this is actually where Selby's sudden money comes from. That's why he has this hostility to Selby because Selby is just some schmuck that he used to acquire the funds that have provided him with this elite station that he has in the world. Uh, I think it's also possible that there's more to it than that, but I will present that uh, to our audience and to you, Brandon, after you argue with me (laughs) about this reading
0: of (laughs) it. (laughs) That 's hilarious, I was going to use that exact passage to defend my reading of the story. Not that Selby is crazy, but th- that um, Vivian is uh, is is bad news and that he 's just been using Selby, and that Selby is clinging to this fantasy not out of a sense of madness but out of a need for for hope right this is this is This is something that is even in the text that you read this hopeless in, endeavor that Vivian is feeling uh, that it comes on that Vivian feels that their that their adventure has, has come to. And I just did not get the sense that Vivian had taken treasure to sell or whatever gold and became a physician with that. I mean, I was perfectly happy to believe, as is a trope of 19th century, late 19th century fiction of the relative that dies that nobody knows about and they leave you money and your your life changes. And what's revealed in that is the revelation of the true nature of the the person who's gotten the inheritance. And we're meant to understand, and I think we agree on this, that Vivian has always been kind of uh, a bad friend, a bad a bad person.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I I think my thinking about this comes from the question of why would Vivian try to kill Selby or even meet with him if he didn't have something that he wanted to hide, right? That the, this meeting in the alley beneath this drawing of the the red hand has Selby proving to Vivian that he has found the location, you know, of this uh, treasure trove and wants, wants Vivian to come with him. I don't understand why that would prompt Vivian to try to stab Selby unless he's worried about Selby's possible actions in in some way. And just trying to think, what is it that he has to hide? Or what is it that he stands to lose from Selby going into the treasure trove? The only thing I could think of is that he'll discover that Vivian's already been there and that that would have some kind of negative consequence
0: in some way. Well, I think Selby's afraid to go in the trove because the keepers are still there and the troglodytes are real. And that gives us the kind of closure for the story of how we even open this. Was Dyson saying, Let's find those troglodytes, <laughs> you know? And then they are told there it's related to them that they are indeed real. They worship this, you know, wicked god. The pain of the goat is the craziest name for an artifact ever. And I wonder. Glenn, if you're not striking upon maybe the core problem of this story as a story, which is that uh, things just happen, right? There's not really anything beyond that. Uh, Dyson happens to find the black tablet. Like, why should Dyson come across the black tablet? The way that he has. Well, this is Machen's way of moving the plot forward, but it's very clumsy. It doesn't really. It it speaks, I guess, a little bit to Dyson's methodology, but I need more than that than a wild landlady throwing a piece of rock at a bartender. Uh, you know, for me, for my storytelling sensibilities. So I think that that Machen is sometimes a little over reliant on coincidence or just having things. Happen so that the plot can be motivated and go into full gear, and so my reading of Vivian wanting to kill Selby was really um, really an expression of his contempt of Selby and not wanting to be bothered by this this person who could reveal his, his past, somebody who's a Royal physician now is going to be revealed to be, uh, somebody who lived in a dirty old flat off of Grayson road. So there was some pride there that motivated the murder, not, um, shame. I guess that's, that's really, that's where I come down on it is our, our, our understanding of Vivian's motivation for murder is very different
1: yeah. And of course, either reading is utterly plausible, entirely plausible because Mackin doesn't care about this question. <laughs> <laughs> at all. And, and, and not just Mac, it like Dyson doesn't care about the question, right? Like not Dyson all, but... as a detective is just like, yeah, sometimes people just try to kill each other in back alleys and it does not at all matter to figure out why that would, what happened. Like to me, this is actually the mystery of the story. And for Dyson, it is not for Dyson. Uh, discovering this means that the case is closed. I think this is just opening the, the case. And so, yeah, maybe let's use, and so, yeah, maybe let's use this as a way to talking about the red hand as a detective story. Uh, does this satisfy you as a detective story
0: no not at all it's a terrible detective story i i love this story i would just hesitate to characterize it as a detective story there is procedural stuff here right so like when we're talking about a detective story one of the ways detective stories are told is as a police procedural what is the procedural what is the procedure of the investigation right and so this This story has quite a few procedural elements to it. It's just that our detective is put into contrast with that mode of policing or investigating. Um, And so Dyson is somebody who says, sometimes you just need to open yourself up to the world. And the more you open yourself up to the world with a focus on what you want, it's it's the exact plot of that book, The Secret, that came out years and years ago, uh, which is like if you tell the universe what you want enough times, certainly you'll be be attentive to what's out there and you might get lucky and come across what you're looking for once in a while. The Secret tells you this will happen every time. But I think Dyson is right. It takes a lot of A lot of time and energy. His method is wild and almost an anti-method. But I love the openness. I love the things that Dyson is focused on. I wish Makin had fleshed that out a little bit more in his own head to make this a more compelling detective story, because sitting around and waiting for coincidence is the least interesting thing a detective can do. But I still love this story and all the elements of it. I just It's not satisfying as a detective story.
1: I agree 100%. It's a, an amazing story. I'm glad to have had the chance to reread it and to talk about it with you. But as a detective story, it's disappointing. But I think that Mackin definitely considers this a detective story, that Mackin was setting out to write a detective story. At this point, you know, Sherlock Holmes has been around for not even 10 years. And so I think that this is Mackin saying, I'm going to write a detective story in the vein of Sherlock Holmes, except that it's going to be about this weird fiction stuff. And I think one of the ways that we can see that is that Dyson has this method that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense that he explains to his sidekick here. This is maybe not all that different from something that you and I have read recently in A Study in Scarlet, where we have Holmes and Watson having a similar kind of conversation, except that you know, Holmes is always right about everything in a way that is like aggressive, which is not not the case with <laughs> Dyson. D- Dyson is right about everything in a way that kind of strikes us as lucky. And so I think that here in this story, Macken is thinking of Dyson as a kind of calmer, more genteel, more gentlemanly antidote to Holmes, or maybe not antidote, but alternative to Holmes. And even I think we can see that the solution to the mystery is also very similar to the solution of the mystery in a study in Scarlet, which is in order to figure out what actually happened, we just need to find the person who did the actual killing and then ask that person to tell us everything. And the telling us everything is going to comprise the bulk of the story, right? And that's it's the same it's the same formula
0: here. Absolutely. Yeah, I was going to say that the the resolution here, the inviting, the invitation to the murderer to to the house, uh, uh, the, them revealing their story, Dyson being the arbiter of justice, justice at the end, all of this is ripped right from a study in Scarlet. Um, and yeah, you can tell that Makin is thinking about how can I create my own detective and tell the types of stories that I want to tell. I think he does better in the inmost light, in my opinion. There's a little bit more detection there. The wandering is a little bit more directed in that story. But I think you just have to change your framework. I'm not saying this to you, Glenn, but maybe to our audience, that that it's worth shifting your frame of mind or cast of mind when reading these Dyson stories and kind of letting go of that association with Holmes, regardless of how evident it is, and taking Machin at his own and kind of considering his own goals, though though Malkin is trying to tap into the popular mind and the popular audience and is borrowing from the most popular stories of his time, he's very much interested in an entirely different set of questions about the world than um, Arthur Conan Doyle is
1: right. I think that's completely true. I don't think that Mackin is actually all that interested in detecting as as a kind of puzzle. He's not interested in telling that kind of story, which is probably why we only get three of these Dyson stories, which you lamented, you know, at the top of the show, and I lament right. as well. But I think that Mackin was trying to do something here and just found that maybe he, he either didn't really enjoy doing that all that much, or just didn't have the inclination to write uh, something about a detective using clues to discover what's going on, right? That what Macken was really interested in was Selby's first person account. And that's really, which which, which of course could actually have stood as a story on its own. I mean, I think he might've wanted to do a little work with that, but really could have stood as a story on its own. Uh, One last thing I'll say about the connections between a study in Scarlet and the Red Hand. Actually, I'm going to say two things, but the the first is that um, uh, it's only until we've been talking that I've realized, yeah, they actually both have red in the title as well. right So like that's <laughs> just, that's pretty that's, that too, that's yeah. pretty on the nose as well. <laughs> uh, the other thing I should say for our audience is uh, that, yeah, you and I have covered a study in Scarlet as part of our Sherlock Holmes series that we did on Patreon this year. So uh, this conversation, this line of questioning, is not just coming out of out of nowhere. And you didn't miss anything in the feed. Uh, but if you'd like to check that out, you can uh, join us on Patreon and get access to that. And we'll uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that in the year in review show as well, I'm sure. Uh, but I've got one more question, maybe line of questioning, before we sign off on this one, Brandon. And that's just to circle back around to the weird fiction element of the story. Uh, I want to talk about the keepers of the treasure and also this golden object, the pain of the goat. Phillips and Dyson are revolted by the object when Selby shows it to them. And Selby explains that this is nothing. He says, "'You do not wonder that I did not stay long in a place where those who live are a little higher than the beasts, and where what you have seen is surpassed a thousandfold.'" And really then, Brandon, the question that I have about this is just who or what do you think these keepers are? Are they just Homo sapiens who live underground and have largely retained the same culture for thousands of years? Or is Macken envisioning something else here?
0: I think we need to understand what Macken means by by troglodyte here. I think he's really interested in, and we, we see this also in the quote that I read, that Lovecraft used in the horror at Red Hook, that Machin is really interested in de-evolution, maybe atavism to some degree, but this return to a pre-human state, this phrase, a little higher than the beasts, is... Very Christian in its understanding of cosmology. Um, Machin, we should we should say was a, was a practicing um, Christian of a particular sect, but I don't. I, you know, we don't need to get into denominations or the history of Christianity here. But um, this phrase is is a phrase that you get in Christian cosmology about the order of being of where humans. You know, are on the tr- chain of being. And Makin's M- M- thinking if there were multiple species of humans or iterations of humans as the science is bearing out, as people are discovering uh, old fossilized bones or something like that, that there must be a progression kind of of to where we are now. There's a the Hegelian almost understanding of the movement of history through its ages towards a golden age. So anything before us now is worse. Anything after us is better. And we're always in this stage of uh, synthesis, in a sense, of of resolving the uh, dialectics of the past, the, the, the unresolvable conflicts. So I think this sense of troglodyte here is really meant to evoke this sense of of people worshiping the wrong stuff, who are full of wickedness, um, and that they were evil because they're an older race than we are. So there's even this almost sense of racism, like or speciesism, something like that, going on here as well. And I think that that's what Mackin's understanding is: is that there's there could still be Cave dwellers—they could still be of a race that is not quite Homo Sapien, and if they are, if that exists, given this kind of Hegelian viewpoint, um, they are way worse and way more wicked than we are, and their survival is kind of anathema in a sense. And so the pain of the goat is obviously some kind of animistic worship, um, and it's got to be very dark, and that's what I don't know. I I lost my way there in terms of what your question exactly was, but hopefully I answered it a little bit. Well, some of the, the language that you're
1: using here about atavism and, and, and primitiveness and so on, Brandon, I think is really evocative of something that I felt, uh, maybe not really noticed, but felt while reading the story, which is that I think that we see some of this show up elsewhere in Lovecraft. And here I'm thinking specifically of the rats in the walls, and I think that this is the sense of it that that Lovecraft has drawn. I, though, was thinking about this story more in terms of or in light of uh, a later Macken story that you and I have covered like 165 episodes ago or something like that. <laughs> uh, the story Out of the Earth, which was this Arthurian fairy story where... One of the things that Macken is really interested in is the question of whether or not fairies are real, which I guess is also something that Arthur Conan Doyle is really interested in, but I think they have very different ideas about that. I mean, Macken is one of these people who thinks that the folklore about fairies is really some kind of folk or or, or cultural memory of some other sentient Homo species, right? Not Homo sapiens, but something else, right? That our folklore about fairies and elves and trolls and dwarfs and so on is a is a memory of like Neanderthals or some something else, right? Some someone else on the the Homo in the Homo genus, but not Homo sapiens. And that what he's positing here is the survival of this other species, this related species to us here in the west of, of England in this way that is absolutely terrifying. So uh, yeah, not like fantasy fairies, but some kind of Darwinian understanding of or Darwinian interpretation of European folklore rendered in this weird fiction way. And this is something we see Mackin do elsewhere. It's something we see Robert E. Howard do as well. You and I have actually covered way less of this than uh, I think is represented actually in the literature that we that we study. We'll get more of this uh, in the future, I think. But uh, I really liked this element of the story. Like I think the weird part of this story is actually really, really fascinating. And I wish that Dyson had thought it was as fascinating as, as uh, I did.
0: That's what's so weird about this story is is Dyson's openness to the experiences of the world, to new kinds of information, is in my opinion what makes Dyson great. Right? Not as an investigator, but as one who's open to epiphany and revelation. And I and I love that about this character. And I love that this story leaves so much um, lingering, though we get closure in meaningful ways there's also enough to linger beyond the story that you can really have fun with it. And uh, I think that's that's kind of one, another way where I would put Dyson in contrast with um, Holmes is that Holmes' epiphanies, and a lot of the epiphanies we get from detectives after Holmes are the result of a logic that we just, we were missing that one piece that's going to give us this closure of the logical circuit. Whereas Dyson... Is just so open that he—he's not. There's no missing piece. There's just waiting for revelation, and I think that's a great instinct on Malkin's part. In. Conceiving of a detective, um, but you do need them to to detect or investigate once in a while. Find something in a library, something like that. Not just have a mad bar, a mad bart te- woman uh, throw something at a bartender. You know this. That part of the story really bothered me as a, as a reader. It's too much coincidence. But I think tightening up some of these things, um, Machin could have really made Dyson something really culturally significant in a way that Dyson is just kind of an artifact of the past now.
1: Yeah, we're going to have an opportunity to talk more about this and expand the point of comparison here beyond just Holmes very, very shortly, because we've got our year in review show coming up. So I think this is a good place to bring this conversation to a close today. I'm Glenn McDorman.
0: And I'm Brandon Budo. You can find us and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Please join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia to listen to us talk about aliens, also a study in Scarlet. Also at a certain level, you can just talk to us directly on Discord about some stuff we're covering. We have some great conversations going on over there with our patrons, and uh, it's really, really great to see. That's That seems to be the right place for the forum to really operate, Glenn. So uh, there's a lot you get from joining us at Patreon, and we hope you'll at least go and check. Check it out and um, give us what you're able to give us to keep these shows going. Yeah, we really appreciate everyone's support. And it,
1: it is directly connected to how long the show stays on the air. And we really, really appreciate that. As I said, we've got the Year in Review show coming up, but before we do that, we have a bonus episode commissioned by one of our Patreon supporters to to air. Uh, That is going to be on the novella V by Nikolai Gogol, something I'm very excited about. And then after that, we will have our Year in Review show. But until next time, we greet you and say farewell.